Chapter 17 of Hellenic History This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett, Melbourne, Australia. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford Chapter 17 Age of Pericles 4. Thought, Culture and Character Part 1. Science and Philosophy Scientific Progress, Technical Writings and Astronomy The scientific spirit, awakened in the 6th century in Ionia, had run swiftly through the length and breadth of Hellas to incite in individuals a love of collecting facts and of systematising them on a rational basis. Many literary products of this spirit served useful as well as theoretical purposes. Works on sculpture and architecture, music and literary criticism were, in part, handbooks for learners of the respective arts. From the time of Pythagoras, advances were made in arithmetic, geometry and astronomy. His followers taught the rotundity of earth, sun and moon. From a more careful study of the heavens, the astronomer Meton of Athens devised a 19-year cycle for bringing the lunar and solar years into harmony. In this system, the solar year was estimated at 365 and 5.19 days, about a half hour short of the truth. Although he was permitted to set up his calendar on the Nix, it was not adopted by his own people till the next century, and it extended still more slowly to the rest of the Hellenes. Medical Progress, Hippocrates, 460 to 377. From the time of Pythagoras, too, notable progress was made in medicine, so that not even the Egyptian physician could any longer compare with the Greek. Although cities were woefully backward in sewerage and general sanitation, it may be set down to their credit that they supported from the public purse physicians who treated the citizens free of charge. While the masses still believed in expelling diseases by charms and prayer, or by visits to the shrines of Asclepius, the medical profession of the Periclean age had eliminated magic and every form of superstition from theory and practice, and stood on the solid ground of scientific observation and experiment. Hippocrates, of Cos, the most celebrated physician of the ancient world, was a young man in the beginning of his practice before the close of the age. In his family, the profession had been hereditary, as was generally true of trades or other fields of technical skill. In view of the fact that medical knowledge had accumulated at the temples of Asclepius, where the sick and the maimed sought divine healing, it is significant of the scientific spirit of Hippocrates that in all his writings he never prescribes a visit to such a shrine. Every illness, he declares, has a natural cause, and without natural causes nothing ever happens. He lays great stress on hygiene, especially diet, on the principle that nature is the best physician, but he was ready to use drugs or, when necessary, cutting and cauterizing. 
Where drugs fail, steel will cure. Where steel fails, fire will cure. Where fire fails, there is no cure. It was his achievement to repel from his domain all assaults of sophists and speculative philosophers, and while maintaining and expanding the scientific method of his predecessors, to uphold for his profession the noblest ideals of devotion to duty and to right. Progress in Philosophy Heraclitus died 475. Not only special branches of knowledge were being cultivated, but great progress was taking place in the philosophic attitude towards the world as a whole and its problems. With Heraclitus of Ephesus, who flourished early in the century, philosophy began to concern itself with the motion, change, life of nature. Not being, he asserted, but becoming is the fundamental essence of things. Meditation on this subject led him to imagine a world-ruling reason, Logos, which produces the ever-changing phenomena of the universe. This controlling principle can be apprehended only by a few sages like himself, who also possess a Logos similar in kind to that of the universe, whereas the masses are doomed to eternal ignorance and folly. The self-assertive personality of this philosopher, added to the evident depth of his mental vision, has influenced the thought of the world even to the present day. While his obscure, riddling prophetic utterances, along with his doctrine of the divine and human Logos, gave pronounced encouragement to mysticism, Continuation of the Aleatics, Empedocles, about 495 to 430. In spite of the repudiation of being by Heraclitus and his insistence on becoming as the sole reality, the successors of Xenophanes the Aleatic continued more strongly than ever to deny motion and change and to claim for being alone a real existence. An attempt was made to harmonise these views by Empedocles of Acragas. With the Eleatics, he denied absolute origin and decay, but unlike them, he believed in the plurality of being. There are, he asserted, four elements, earth, water, air and fire, of which all things are composed. The forces that combine and separate them are love and hate the poetic antecedents of attraction and repulsion. In this way, he was able to use both being and becoming in his theory of the formation of the world. He paid less attention to the character of his elements than to the processes of nature. In accounting for plant and animal forms, he enunciated a principle crudely anticipative of the survival of the fittest. At the same time, he introduced into science the idea of elements, which has survived to our own age. Unlike all his predecessors, Empedocles zealously courted popularity. He was a politician, a leader of the democracy of his city, a prophet, and a physician of miraculous power. He asserted his ability to heal old age, to raise and calm the winds, produce rain and drought, 
and to recall the dead to life. Gorgeously arrayed in brilliant robes and adorned with flowers, he passed from city to city, everywhere venerated as a god. Finally, as his friends reported, he ascended living to heaven, whereas cynical gossip averred rather that he had leapt into the crater of Mount Etna. The Atomists Eusippus and Democritus, about 460 to 350 Every new philosopher, after learning what his predecessors had to teach, attempted to correct the faults of their suppositions or methods with a view to approaching nearer to the truth. Thus it was that Leucippus, seemingly a younger contemporary of Empedocles, began working out the problem of that thinker in a more scientific way. Seeing no reason why being should be limited to precisely four elements, he assumed instead its division into an indefinite number of minute, indivisible particles, termed atoms. By the side of being, which he interpreted as matter, he assumed the existence of void, empty space, in which the atoms moved. In place of the mythical love and hate, he substituted gravitation, a strictly physical force. With being, void and gravitation, he proceeded to explain the formation of the world, the processes of nature, and even feeling and thought in a purely mechanical way. The atomic theory, afterward developed into a system by his famous pupil, Democritus, was generally denounced by the ancients as materialistic, hence as ethically demoralising. Appreciating its value, however, the modern world has placed it in the foundation of science, and it still holds true, excepting that chemists have pushed the analysis of matter far beyond the atom. Anaxagoras, about 500 to 428. More in accord with the general ethical direction of Greek thought, hence more influential, was Anaxagoras, a contemporary of Leucippus. His lasting contribution to philosophy was to substitute for gravitation an infinite and omniscient intelligence which orders all things. He did not consciously think of it as a person or as a deity, but regarded it merely as a directing force. If not immaterial, it was at least a substance unmixed and in quality unique. The religious and ethical consequences of his theory, however, were left mainly to future thinkers to draw. Influence of the philosophers, their limitations. The influence of all philosophers was thus far limited to narrow circles of pupils. To the public, the thinker seemed an odd, unnatural being, who in his search for the undiscoverable and the unpractical neglected everything that the Greek held dear a subject for ridicule in comedy, or for prosecution on the charge of atheism, of having substituted whirligig for Zeus. Those who, braving public opinion, became acquainted with the various systems of thought, were generally struck by their contradictions, the uncertain foundations on which they rested, and their utter uselessness in life. 
Thus far, in fact, Hellenic thinkers, while discovering the most fundamental principles of science and philosophy, had pursued the faulty method of generalization on the basis of too few facts. Little more could be accomplished without a careful and extensive study of nature. Rhetoric and the Sophists Meanwhile, with the rise of democracy involving the theory of human equality, a demand was created for a technical education that would fit any man who wished for public life. Statesmanship, once based on inborn gifts of speech and political wisdom, had to be democratised. This demand called into being the art of rhetoric, whose aim was to equip any man, however humble his talent, for public speaking. Shortly after the establishment of democracy in Syracuse, 466, Corax of that city developed the first method of juridical oratory, and from his school was issued the earliest practical treatise on the subject. Rhetoric, however, concerned itself with nothing beyond the communication of thought and the persuasion to a belief or an action. It had to be supplemented by a working knowledge of government and society. Hence arose a class of men who professed to teach not only rhetoric, but all knowledge essential to the statesman. Such instructors in wisdom were termed sophists. They travelled from city to city, giving exhibitions of their knowledge and of their skill in argument, and imparting instruction to all who desired it, and who were able to pay the required fee. Protagoras, about 485 to 410. The earliest of this class, and by far the most eminent, was Protagoras. Though vain of his ability, he seems to have possessed an admirable character and to have pursued high aims. Young man, he is represented as saying to a prospective pupil, if you associate with me, on the very first day you will return home a better man than you came, and better on the second day than on the first, and better every day than you were the day before. He will learn, the teacher continues, what he came to learn, and that is prudence in affairs private as well as public. He will learn to order his own house in the best manner, and he will be able to speak and act for the best in the affairs of the state. Theory of Knowledge Held by Protagoras The speculations of philosophers had led many to doubt the possibility of knowledge. Abandoning all hope of discovering the one true essence of the universe, Protagoras boldly declared that man is the measure of all things. In other words, everything is precisely what it seems to the individual. In two respects, this declaration opened a new era. First, it directed attention to the mind and its relation to the outside world, thus paving the way to a mental philosophy or psychology. Secondly, by shifting the centre of attention from the world to man, it gave, along with many cooperating forces, a tremendous impetus to the growth of individualism. Beginnings of political and social science. The same thinker had a theory to offer as to the basis of society and the state. 
the desire of self-preservation gathered mankind into cities. But when they were gathered together, having no art of government, they harmed one another, and were again in process of dispersion and destruction. Zeus feared that the entire race might be exterminated, and therefore sent Hermes to them, bearing reverence and justice to be the ordering principles of cities and the bonds of friendship and conciliation. Hermes asked Zeus how he should impart justice and reverence among men. Should he distribute them as the arts are distributed, that is, to a favoured few only, one skilled individual having enough of medicine or of any other art for many unskilled ones? Shall this be the manner in which I am to distribute justice and reverence among men, or shall I give it to them all? To all, said Zeus, I should like them all to have a share, for cities cannot exist if only a few share in the virtues, as in the arts, and further make a law by my order that he who has no part in reverence and justice shall be put to death for he is a plague to the state. Here was the beginning of a line of thought which led to the creation of sociology and political science. Furthermore, Protagoras and his contemporary sophists began the study of grammar, phonetics and philology, all necessarily in a rudimentary way. Development of political science, Hippodamus. Political science was taken up at this time by other thinkers, and carried much farther. It was directed along two principal lines. First, the criticism of existing constitutions, of which an example is mentioned above. Second, the creation of ideal constitutions. The first author of such a constitution was Hippodamus, the famous engineer who planned Piraeus and Thuriae. There was little that was peculiar in his system, but the beginning he made was in time developed by more inventive thinkers. Nature versus convention, dissolution of the traditional. Other sophists of the age borrowed from Protagoras his theory of knowledge, and with varying motive and ability, pursued the same methods. All laid stress on the distinction between nature, whose laws observed by all nations are morally binding, and convention, man-made customs and statutes for which they cherished no reverence. The effect of this principle was to dissolve tradition, including the religion and the moral usages of the fathers. In their view, the past was an age of ignorance and superstition. The present alone was worthy of consideration. The same principle tended equally to break down the barriers of social class and the boundaries of states. By nature, all men are brothers, and it is wrong for one to enslave another. Though dissolvents of the established political, social, and religious order, they were preparing the way to a worldwide humanism, to more friendly relations among states, to federations and empire. It is significant that one of the greater sophists, Georgias, a Sicilian, seeing perhaps dimly the need of a universal language of culture, adopted for that purpose the Attic dialect. Part 2. History and the Drama History. Herodotus. About 484 to 425. 
the spirit of scientific inquiry naturally involved an eagerness to know the past of the human race and this desire created history the first historian whose works have been preserved was herodotus we are unable therefore to say definitely how great an advance he made beyond hecateus his most distinguished predecessor born in the period of the conflict with persia herodotus lived through the age of pericles and the earlier years of the peloponnesian war his native place was halicarnassus a city of dorian stock which had adopted the ionian tongue and which lay on the borderland between hellas and the persian empire he travelled to egypt into asia as far as susa to the countries about pontus to italy in brief to most of the known world everywhere he gathered material which found its way into his work epic origin and dramatic influence as the genealogists were the literary descendants of hesiod herodotus was a son of homer and his history might well be described as a great prose epic influenced to some extent by the contemporary drama a brief preface explains the object of his work this is a presentation of the inquiry historia of herodotus of halicarnassus to the end that time may not obliterate the great and marvellous deeds of hellenes and barbarians and especially that they may not forget the causes for which they waged war with one another in his search for causes he narrates from earliest times the notable achievements of all the peoples who were involved in the war and used that conflict as the unifying element of his work treating thus of substantially the entire known world his production may be described as a universal history method of research so far as we know herodotus was the first to apply the word history in its original sense of inquiry to this field of literature it aptly describes his method of gathering information by personal inquiry of those who were supposed to know often unsatisfied with an individual source he pursued his investigation among various authorities thus introducing the comparative method of research the object of his history as he conceived it required him to tell all he had thus heard i am under obligation to tell what is reported though i am not bound altogether to believe it and let this saying hold good for every narrative in the history we find him accordingly often expressing doubt as to what he hears comparing the more with the less credible account or reasoning about the reliability of his source although his work abounds in myths and fictions and although he was often at the mercy of untrustworthy informants he was far from credulous even the fictitious tales whether myths or more recent inventions are of greater value for illustrating the thought and life of the age than would have been a dry enumeration of facts however well ascertained from the point of view here mentioned this feature of his work is a positive merit broad-mindedness another great quality of herodotus 
is his broad-mindedness, to which his cosmopolitan birthplace and extensive travels contributed. He could understand that many foreign customs were at least as good as the Hellenic, that there were great and admirable characters among the barbarians, and that monarchy as well as democracy has its good features. A comparison of Egyptian with Hellenic tradition taught him the emptiness of the claim of certain Greeks to near descent from a god. In Hellenic tradition, the gods continued to connect themselves with the human race by marriage and parentage to nine, eight, or even six centuries before the historian's time, whereas Egyptian chronology removed such phenomena 15,000 years into the past. This comparative study of religion convinced Herodotus that his countrymen entertained many false notions as to their own gods and as to the beginnings of the human race. Regarding the existence of the gods, however, and their providential dealings with men, the historian betrays no scepticism. With other enlightened men of his age, he believes in a divine providence who rules the world and in a kindly spirit watching over men, revealing his will through omens, dreams and oracles. The popular opinion that God is envious of human happiness, and therefore always sends evil to counterbalance good luck, he puts in the mouths of others, but does not himself express. Like Aeschylus, he seems to believe that the downfall of the great, for example of Xerxes, is in punishment for insolence which unusual prosperity often induces. Summary, the Father of History In religion, therefore, though casting off much that is extraneous, he holds firmly to the enlightened orthodoxy of the time, while in moral character and purpose he stands on a level with the best men of his century. From the point of view of strict historical science, while advancing beyond Hecatarchus, he is still crude and imperfect, whereas his broad sympathy and kindly interest in everything human, his high religious and moral principles, his inexhaustible fund of anecdotes, illustrative of customs and character, his charming style and genial personality have entitled him to his place as the father of history and have given his literary production a universal and eternal interest. Sophocles, 496-404 The religious and moral ideas of the age find their best expression in the great Attic dramatist Sophocles. Literature had not yet become a profession. As Aeschylus was a soldier, Sophocles filled public offices. Such labours, however, did not ruffle the serenity or disturb the comfort of an easy life. The problems he deals with are less gigantic than those of Aeschylus, and his solutions are as a rule more pacific. There are, however, many points of contact. Like Aeschylus, he believes in the omniscience and almighty power of God. Joined with this belief is the conviction that he is just and merciful. Zeus himself in all that he doeth, hath mercy for a sharer of his throne. He is a providence to whom man may confidently leave his troubles. 
Courage, my daughter, courage. Great still in heaven is Zeus, who sees and governs all. Leave thy bitter quarrel to him. As guardians of right, the powers above are punishers of misdeeds, slow but sure in their pursuit of the unrighteous. The gods of country and of kin. Especially near and dear are the local spirits, gods of the land, to whom the returning wanderer first lifts his hands. Near are the gods of one's race, of one blood with the worshipper, they who founded the family or genres, and are most concerned for its preservation. Communication between gods and men, scepticism. Great and good, and interested in the welfare of man, the heavenly powers have found means of communicating their will to him through visions, oracles, and the mouths of seers. It is natural, however, that the scientific inquiring spirit of the Periclean age, involving rationalism and religious doubt, should reflect itself in the troubled life of the Sophoclean dramas. Oedipus, though by nature essentially religious, doubts the prophetic art of Tiresias and seems to prove his point by irrefutable argument. His wife, Jocasta, rejects even the oracle of Apollo and despising all moral law, advise a random, heedless life. More excusable is the long-suffering Philoctetes. No evil thing has been known to perish. No, the gods take tender care of such, and have a strange joy in turning back from Hades all things villainous and knavish, while they are forever sending the just and the good out of life, how am I to deem of these things, or wherein shall I praise them, when praising the ways of the gods I find that the gods are evil? But in the end, all these doubts and complaints are overwhelmed by the catastrophe of the drama. Prophetic truth and divine providence are fully vindicated. Only at the close of the Trachinii, Hylus, standing over the body of his father Heracles, who, having toiled through life for the good of mankind and innocent of wrong, died a death of unspeakable agony, pronounces on the gods a judgment that the audience carried uncontroverted to their homes. Mark the great cruelty of the gods in the deeds that are being done. They have children and are hailed as fathers, and yet they can look upon such sufferings. No man foresees the future, but the present is fraught with mourning for us, and with shame for the powers above, and verily with anguish beyond compare for him who endures this doom. Burial and its rites. Among the religious rites most sacred are those attending burial. It is a great comfort to the dying man to know that his body is not cast forth a prey to dogs and birds. A law which the gods have established requires kinsmen to bury their dead with all due ceremony. For burying her brother in obedience to this order of heaven, Antigone was condemned to interment alive. I will bury him, well for me to die in doing that. I shall rest a loved one with him whom I have loved, sinless in my crime, for I owe a longer allegiance to the dead than to the living, 
in that world I shall abide forever. It was the duty of the kin to wash and deck the body, to lay it on the funeral pyre, to place the ashes in the urn for depositing in the tomb. Thereafter it was fitting at intervals to pour offerings on the mound, and encircle it with garlands of flowers, and place thereon locks of hair freshly cut from the head. No enemy of the dead should join in these ceremonies. Future Life References to future life are vague. Yet one who, like Oedipus, has innocently suffered, may hope there for recompense. Many were the sorrows that came to him without cause, but in requital a just God shall lift him up. For him the nether adamant was riven in love, that he might pass on without pain to the world of the dead. Sufferers in this life preferred to think of death as sleep, a perfect rest from pain. Those who had passed on, however, were not without feeling and thought. The vexing or punishing of their foes gave them pleasure, and they had praise for kinsfolk who showed piety to the dead. When duly invoked, the soul came in kindness from the world below to aid a helpless kinswoman against a powerful enemy. Ties of Kin and Marriage Strongest of all ties is that of blood, to move men to compassion and succour. Piety to kin is a higher law than allegiance to the state, even as eternity surpasses the span of earthly life. The ideal marriage is founded on love like that of Antigone and Haemon, a bond whose breaking ruptures life itself. Love is the greatest of conquerors, of destroyers. It is a power enthroned in sway beside the eternal laws. The wife. The change from girlhood to wedded life involves the assumption of grave cares and responsibilities. Yes, the tender plant grows in those sheltered regions of its own, and the sun-god's heat vexes it not, nor rain nor any wind. But it rejoices in its sweet untroubled being, till such time as the girl is called a wife, and finds her portion of anxious thoughts in the night, brooding on danger to husband or to children. Her all-absorbing affection brooks no rival in her husband's favour. Fierce jealousy, awakened by the slightest cause, drives her to love charms, perchance to crime. But the good wife is her husband's solace and his discreet counsellor. She warns him to avoid danger and excessive pride or anger, and urges upon him a moderate, conciliatory temper. Such wives were Jocasta, and even more, Tecmesa. It is natural for the husband to honour his wife above his fellow citizens and to respect her prudence, but the plot demands that as the catastrophe draws near, the hero, his spirit aflame with misguided passion, should brutally override her dearest wishes in the mad onrush to his doom. Overcome by grief, she slays herself. Her death is the mortal stab in a heart already wounded with insufferable woes. Alas, exclaims Creon, when he hears the awful news of his wife's suicide, I was already as dead, and thou hast smitten me anew. What is this new message that thou bringest me? 
Woe, woe is me, of a wife's doom of slaughter, heaped on slaughter. Not every marriage is desirable. The evil wife, sharer of the home, is a joy that soon grows cold, for no wound could strike deeper than a false friend, like the hardened murderess Clytemnestra, who treacherously slew her husband and keeps the day of his death with darts and song, and month by month sacrifices sheep to the gods who have wrought her deliverance. Woman's condition has declined. The condition of woman has sunk somewhat below the level of the preceding generation. It is true that girls are represented as walking freely out of doors with no one to attend, and grown women to take an active part in the councils of family and state, yet these activities belong to the theatrical tradition. Though not wholly a direct reflection of the life of the age, at least they do not offend its taste. Hence they call for no apology from the poet. The decline is seen mainly in the increasing emphasis on the inferiority of women to men in strength and efficiency, and on the desirability of their remaining at home and of observing silence. Thus the case is put to Electra by her gentler sister. Seest thou not? Thou art a woman, not a man and no match for thy adversaries in strength. Elsewhere the same thought is echoed. Nay, we must remember that we were born women who should not strive with men. King Creon thinks it dastardly to yield to woman's will or persuasion. Contemptible is the victory won with woman's aid. Furthermore, that a girl should walk in public unprotected is decried as fraught with peril. Far better to remain indoors than range at large. Yet even this seclusion is made their approach by one of their sex. Nay, by ever-virgin Artemis, exclaims Electra, I will never stoop to fear women, stay-at-homes, vain burdens of the ground. Akin to this sentiment is the proverb, silence graces woman, no less widely entertained for being uttered by a madman. Notwithstanding adverse sentiments and repressive customs, actual women, only in a less degree than the characters of the stage, retain their share of speech, their participation in religious festivals, and while losing ground in society beyond the home, make compensatory gains in influence within the family circle. The Love of Kin the bond of love and of comradeship is notably strong between daughter and father. The saddest thought of blind Oedipus in contemplating exile is that of leaving his daughters. My two girls, poor hapless ones, who never knew my table spread apart or lacked their father's presence, but ever in all things shared my daily bread, I pray thee, care for them. The same union of love and duty, however, runs through the family, constraining the members to forgiveness of anger and of even greater vexations. Thus Antigone reminds her father of his duty toward an erring son. Thou art his sire, so that even if he were to wrong thee with the most impious of foul wrongs, father, it is not lawful for thee to wrong him again. 
A most essential element of such a family is respect for parents. Obedience to a father is the best of laws. The duty of toiling for a parent in need is perfectly fulfilled for her exiled father by Antigone. From the time her tender age was past, and she came to a woman's strength, she hath ever been the old man's guide in weary wanderings, oft roaming hungry and barefoot through the wild wood, oft sore vexed by rains and scorching heat, but regarding not the comforts of home, if so her father should have tendance. The warping of family affection, human limitations. These ideal relations among kinsmen may be fearfully warped by sin. The doctrine of the hereditary curse, its causes, operation and results, is essentially the same as that of Aeschylus. The inner force that impels man to crime is insolence, a disposition to flout divine law. With all his splendid powers of mind, man's chief lesson, therefore, is to learn his human limitations. He must not think himself a god in power, or kill fair hope by fretting over transitory ills. Remember that the son of Kronos himself, the all-disposing king, hath not appointed a painless lot for mortals. Sorrow and joy come round to all as the bear moves in his circling path. Let the prosperous and the powerful keep in mind the instability of their condition. There is no estate of mortal life that I would ever praise or blame as settled. Fortune raises and fortune humbles, the lucky or unlucky from day to day, and no one can prophesy to men concerning these things that are appointed. What is ordained we can by no means escape. Dreadful is the mysterious power of fate. There is no deliverance from it by wealth or by war, by fenced city or by dark sea-beaten ships. Therefore, while our eyes wait to see the destined final day, we must call no one happy who is of mortal race until he hath crossed life's border free from pain. Oft times, indeed, the cup of life holds so much bitterness as to make us doubt the worth of living. Not to be born is, past all prizing, best. But when a man hath seen the light, this is next best by far, that with all speed he should go thither whence he hath come. Sufferings are providential. For when he hath seen youth go by with its light follies, what troublous affliction is strange to his lot? What suffering is not therein? Envy, factions, strife, battles and slaughters. And last of all, age claims him for her own. Age dispraised, infirm, unsociable, unfriended, with which all woe of woe abides. But sufferings come in the providence of God in the working out of destiny. He implants in man wisdom, the supreme part of happiness, and reverence toward the powers above. Great words of prideful men are ever punished with great blows, which in old age teach the chastened to be wise. Moreover, the afflictions of fellow men afford an opportunity for service. 
man's noblest task is to help others by his best means and powers. Citizen and State Man not only lives his individual and family life, but forms part of the state. Our country is the ship that bears us safe, and only in her well-being can the citizens find prosperity. It behooves them, then, to prize the fatherland above all other ties, for its security depends upon the citizen. When he honours the laws of the land, and that justice which he hath sworn by the gods to uphold, proudly stands his city. No city hath he who, for his rashness, dwells with sin, not only in self-interest, but through gratitude for nurture and protection, does the citizen owe the state a kindly loyalty. Civic Virtue His training in civic obligation begins in the family. He who does his duty in his own household will be found righteous in the state as well. In opposition to the rising spirit of fault-finding with government and magistrates, there is enjoined a strict obedience to authority. Never can laws have prosperous course in a city where dread hath no place. But where there is license to insult and to act at will, doubt not that such a state, though favouring gales have sped her, some day at last sinks into the depths. It is urged with reason that, right or wrong, the legitimate authority should be obeyed. The competent should rule. In public life, there is need of able men to lead. The small without the great can ill be trusted to man the walls. Lowly, leagued with great, will prosper best, great served by less. But foolish men cannot learn these truths. Before their mighty leader they cower still and dumb. Behind his back they rail against him and chatter like flocking birds. Here we seem to discover the incipient ochlocracy, bridled but restive under the strong rule of Pericles. Though favouring the rule of the ablest, Sophocles is no friend of tyranny. His ideal government is that of a magistrate, whatever his title, chosen by the people on the ground of ability and of proved loyalty to the state. No god indeed, but the first of men, both in life's common chances and when mortals have to do with more than man, in whose presence even plain folk may enjoy free speech. Such a magistrate is a man of large sympathy as well as of prudence, who cares for his fellow citizens as a father for his children, whose pride is in their well-being, whose heart goes out to them in distress. Well what I that ye suffer all, yet sufferers as ye are, there is not one of you whose sufferings are as mine. Your pain comes on each one of you for himself alone, and for no other but my soul mourns at once for the city, and for myself, and for you. Such a ruler, by precept and example, leads the citizens on the way to virtue, bearing for their general character a great load of responsibility. For a city, as an army, hangs wholly on its leaders, and when men do lawless deeds, 
It is the counsel of their leaders that corrupts them. Interstate Relations, War and Peace Particularly in their relations with each other, governments have need of prudent guidance for averting useless wars, since full many states lightly enter on offence, even though their neighbour lives aright. It is equally a duty to refrain from usurping power over voluntary allies. Of war for the protection of the oppressed, the poet heartily approves. On such an occasion he can glory in the Athenian knighthood, in the flash of steel and the brazen clangour of battle, and can long for a bird's-eye view of the conflict. Oh, to be a dove with swift strength as the storm, that I might reach an airy cloud, with gaze lifted above the fray. In his eyes, however, war is less a cause of glory than a bringer of sorrow for the slaughter of men, the ruin of cities, the enslavement and misery of captive women. War is essentially an evil, as it carries off the fittest, passing by the weakling and the coward. To be brief, I would tell thee this. War takes no evil man by choice, but good men always. Better, then, that all wars should cease. When, ah, when will the number of the restless years be full? At what term will they cease? That bring on me the unending woe of a warrior's toils throughout the wide land of Troy for the sorrow and the shame of Hellas. Would that the man had passed into the depths of the sky or to all receiving Hades, who taught the Hellenes to league themselves for war in hateful arms. Ah, those toils of his, from which so many toils have sprung. Yea, it was he who wrought the ruin of men. Lessons from Sophocles. Many are the lessons that the poet has for mankind, but the sum of all is this. Love for our fellow men, thoughts meet for mortals, inviolate reverence for the supreme being, and wisdom, the chief part of happiness. They who have learned these lessons are loved of the powers above. Part 3. The Personality of Pericles and his interpretation of Athenian character. Pericles in relation to his age. In our effort to penetrate into the mind and character of the Athenians, we are aided by a study of the man who not only brought his community to a summit of civilization, never before reached by the human race, but also incorporated and expressed in his own personality the highest ideals of his age. Born of a union of two illustrious gentes, he inherited the inspiring traditions of both. His father's patriotic achievements in the war with Persia, the great constitutional work of his mother's kin, the thrilling events of his childhood and youth, attending the struggle for freedom and the founding of empire, were in him transmuted into force and nobility of character directed to the political, intellectual, and moral elevation of his country. His Education Pericles enjoyed the best education possible in that age. Music, which included not only lessons on the lyre, 
but literature and other elementary studies, was taught him by Damon, who became his chief political adviser. The aristocratic youth practised singing and lyre-playing, not chiefly with a view to entertaining himself or his friends in social gatherings, but for the moral cultivation of his feelings. The lyric song he learned, with its triple theme, God, Blood and Fatherland, stirred in the singer and the hearers not individualistic but civic emotions. Among the teachers of his riper years was Zeno, the Eleatic philosopher, the creator of dialectic, pointed, systematic conversation directed to the refutation of error and to the establishment of truth. More influential was Anaxagoras of Clazomenae, mentioned above. These philosophers freed his mind from superstition by directing it to a search for natural causes. Inherent tendency, under philosophic cultivation, developed into a serenity of temper which no insult or abuse could ruffle. His Oratory To the same combination of natural character and instruction is due his lofty, dignified eloquence, which earned for him the name Olympian. Though he had no instruction in rhetoric, which was introduced into Athens too late for his service, he took great pains with his language, and before delivering a speech, he always prayed that nothing unbecoming might fall from his lips. His delivery was statuesque. Scarcely a gesture ruffled the folds of his mantle. No theatricality but the weight of his words, the majesty of his person, his deep earnestness, and the confidence of the people in his patriotism, wisdom, and incorruptibility carried conviction. His estate. In order to concentrate his whole energy upon public affairs, he gave over the management of his inherited estate to an able trusty slave, Evangelus, who sold all the produce in a lump and bought for the family the necessities of life as they were required. The method was far from economical, but Pericles was content with a mere subsistence from his estate without increase or diminution of its value. Such was the ideal of his social class. His family, Aspasia. Pericles' wife was a kinswoman, Telesippi, the mothers of his sons Xanthippus and Paralus. But as they could not live happily together, Pericles, at her request, found her another husband. Afterwards, he was attracted to Aspasia, a highly accomplished woman from Miletus. As Athenian women had merely a domestic education and were now kept more strictly at home than they had been in the past, a class of non-Athenian women, termed companions, better educated and more attractive than the natives, usurped their place in the society of men. Under his own law of 451, Pericles could contract no more than an inferior marriage with Aspasia, which excluded the children from the citizenship. They had a son, Pericles, who was given the franchise by a special vote of the assembly. This union proved most happy, but the high-born dames of Athens, 
regarding Aspasia as a social outcast, at first refused to visit her, though in time they overcame this prejudice. Socrates and other brilliant men of the age gathered at her house to discuss questions of rhetoric, philosophy, and practical life with her, and brought their wives that they too might benefit by the conversation. The Best Interpreter of His Age No one could doubt the competence of this man of clear, penetrating vision to interpret the character and ideals of his people. This task he sets before himself in the funeral oration, delivered over those who fell in the first year of the Great War with Peloponnesus, 431. As given by Thucydides, the essential ideas are those of the statesman, but the style is certainly that of the historian, who, in inserting the oration in his narrative after the close of the war, undoubtedly took some liberty even with the thought. However that may be, it forms one of the most precious documents in the history of civilization. Democracy in Government and Society First he explains the political constitution and the manner of life in which the Athenians rose to greatness. The government is called a democracy, for the administration is in the hands of the many, not of the few. But while the law secures equal justice to all alike, talent is also recognised, and when a citizen is in any way distinguished, he is preferred for the public service, not as a matter of privilege, but on grounds of excellence alone. Neither is poverty a bar, but a man may benefit his country, whatever be the obscurity of his condition. In social relations prevails a large measure of liberty. As we have given free play to all in our public life, so in our private intercourse we are not suspicious of one another, nor angry with our neighbour if he does what he likes. We put on no sour looks at him, which, though they leave no mark, are unpleasant. Open and friendly in our private intercourse, we cherish a spirit of reverence in our public acts. We are kept from wrong by respect for authority and the laws, particularly those for the protection of the oppressed. A happy environment. He gives a reason for the festivals more numerous and splendid than in any other Hellenic city. We have not forgotten to provide our spirits with many relaxations from toil. There are regular games and festivals throughout the year. Our home life is refined, and the delight we daily feel in all these blessings helps banish sadness. Happiness was not an end in itself, but a condition of collective efficiency. With all the drudgery of their training, the Lacedaemonians, he contends, are unequal in war to us, who, without laborious drill, win by light hearts and valour. Their ideals are purely military, ours are of a nobler type. Our city is equally admirable in peace and war, for we are lovers of the beautiful, yet simple in our tastes, and we cultivate the mind without loss of manliness. Wealth to us is not mere material for vainglory, 
but an opportunity for achievement. With us, to avow poverty is no disgrace. The true shame is in doing nothing to avoid it. On such principles, the Athenians have attained a high degree of mentality and sane judgment. If few of us are originators, we are all sound judges of policy. In our opinion, the great impediment to action is not deliberation, but the want of knowledge gained by discussion preparatory to action. For we have the peculiar power of thinking before we act, and of acting too whereas other men are courageous from ignorance, but hesitate on reflection. A great imperial and international policy, such as Pericles was following, had to rest not on narrow, ignorant selfishness, but on a kindly, liberal spirit. In doing good, we are unlike others, for we make our friends by conferring, not by receiving favours, we alone benefit our neighbours, not upon a calculation of interest, but in the confidence of freedom and in a frank and fearless spirit. On all these grounds, the citizens and the state afford a pattern for other Greeks. In a word, I claim that Athens is the school of Hellas, and that the individual Athenian, in his own person, clearly possesses the power of adapting himself to the most varied activities with the utmost versatility and grace. Civic education, music and the drama. To meet the varied requirements of the citizen in this intense democracy, in which more than in any other life was civic duty, a man had to be well educated, not in books but in public affairs. He began his training on a small scale in the deem where local affairs were freely discussed in town meeting, and local officers gave a taste of communal management. Further experience he gained in one or more of the thousand administrative offices of the state and empire, and in the ecclesia and law courts. But practical education, in itself narrow and sordid, must be broadened and elevated by ideals. The Athenians needed the teachings and the inspiration of their great poets, and this instruction they received from the choral songs at festivals, and particularly from the drama presented in the theatre. More than sixty days distributed throughout the year were given to festivals, including dramatic exhibitions, to which must be added the holidays of the deems. The wealthy citizens provided the entertainments, spending on them many times the sum required by the state, and receiving their reward in the respect and the political support of the masses. Every year, too, from one to two thousand boys and men appeared before the public in choruses for the dramatic and other exhibitions which required them. These choral services, as well as others, generally rotated among the qualified citizens, thus giving all, or nearly all, a training in music and some study of literature. Hence we may understand why it was that the Athenian public in the theatre could follow the great tragedies of Aeschylus and Sophocles, and could appreciate literary allusions and fine points in music 
which have been irrecoverably lost to the world. Intellectual and Moral Elevation Not simply the artistic taste of the community, but the intellectual keenness and grasp of these men, who could follow the arguments of orators on complicated questions of foreign policy, as well as the great dramas of the age, were wonderful. From the entire Hellenic race, more highly endowed than any other, a happy combination of circumstances had selected the Athenian community and had lifted it equally high above the general Greek level. The moral plane of life, too, was nothing mean. This fact we discover in the extreme attention paid to manners and morals in education, from infancy through childhood and youth, by parents, nurse, governor and teachers. Education and admonition commence in the first years of childhood and last to the very end of life. Mother and nurse and father and tutor are vying with one another about the improvement of the child as soon as ever he is able to understand what is being said to him. He cannot say or do anything without their setting forth to him that this is just and that is unjust. This is honourable, that is dishonourable. This is holy, that is unholy. Do this and abstain from that. If he obeys, well and good. If not, he is straightened by threats and blows, like a piece of bent or warped wood. At a later stage they send him to teachers, and enjoin them to see to his manners even more than to his reading and music, and the teachers do as they are desired. When accordingly the boy has learned his letters and is beginning to understand what is written, as before he understood only what was spoken, they put into his hands the works of great poets, which he reads, sitting on a bench in school. In these works are contained many admonitions, and many tales, and praises, and eulogies of ancient famous men, which he is required to learn by heart, in order that he may imitate or emulate them, and desire to become like them. Then again the teachers of the lyre take similar care that their young pupil is temperate and gets into no mischief, and when they have taught him the use of the lyre, they introduce him to the poems of other excellent poets, who are lyric poets. These poems they set to music, and make their harmonies and rhythms quite familiar to the children's souls, in order that they may learn to be more gentle and harmonious and rhythmical and so more fitted for speech and action, for the life of man in every part has need of harmony and rhythm. Then they send them to the master of gymnastics, in order that their bodies may better minister to the virtuous mind, and that they may not be compelled through bodily weakness to play the coward in war, or on other such occasions. This is done by those who have the means, the rich, their children begin to go to school soonest and leave off latest. Good order in the theatre. The same high moral standard we see in the perfect order at the theatres. There the people gathered, not to judge of the music, 
but to receive recreation and instruction, and no one dared make a noise expressing approval or the reverse. In early time, music was divided among us into certain kinds and manners. One sort consisted of prayers to the gods, which were called hymns, and there was another and opposite sort called lamentations, and another called paeans, and another, celebrating the birth of Dionysus, called, I believe, dithyrams. They used further the actual word laws for another kind of song, and to this kind they added the term Sitharoedic. All these and others were duly distinguished, nor were the performers allowed to confuse one style with another. Furthermore, the authority which determined and gave judgment, and punished the disobedient, was not expressed in a hiss, nor in the most unmusical shouts of the multitude, as in our own days, nor in applause and clapping of hands, but the directors of public instruction insisted that the spectators should listen in silence to the end, and boys and their tutors, and the multitude in general, were kept quiet by a hint from a stick. Blemishes and limitations. Morality is civic. Further evidence is the appeal of the dramatic poets to a remarkably high moral sense, and the lofty moral key in which the funeral oration of Pericles is pitched. Most of all, the moral quality shows itself in the sacrifice of the individual to the good of the community. All this does not signify that either private or public life was faultless. The blemishes of the civilization show themselves, for example, in the indecencies of comedy, in the cramping of the lives of native women, and the license allowed to the companions of foreign birth, in the existence of slavery, however good may have been the condition of slaves, in the narrowness and exclusiveness of Athenian interests, as opposed to those of Metics, dependent allies, Hellenes, and the world, a selfishness easily explicable by the conditions of the times, but nonetheless an imperfection. A part of the narrowness here mentioned, a part of the strength and weakness of the city-state, is the fact that her morality was essentially civic, the fundamental motive to right conduct, as Pericles himself asserts, is the good of the state. I would have you day by day fix your eyes upon the greatness of Athens till you become filled with the love of her, and when you are impressed by the spectacle of her glory, reflect that this empire she owes to men with the fighter's daring the wise man's understanding of his duty, and the good man's self-discipline in its performance. To men who, if they failed in any ordeal, disdained to deprive the city of their services, but sacrificed their lives as the best offerings in her behalf. The patriotic devotion here required was too intense to be lasting. No long time after Pericles, the gradual disintegration of the city-states resulted in depriving the citizen of his moral basis, and compelled him to fight out anew, 
the whole battle of conduct on other very different ground. End of chapter 17 and end of The Age of Pericles.